May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Guk Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Guk Audio and Guk Archives. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, Gloria Simono. I met her at Tassar in 1972, and... Um, uh, Gloria uh, has done a lot of really good work uh, with uh, homeless kids in San Francisco, with uh, kids with cancer, with art projects. She started Drawing Bridge in San, in San Francisco, and that's still going back in the in the early eighties. And uh, she started Arambi Arts, uh, which works with. Uh, Oh, kids in ghettos in uh, Kenya. She'll tell you about it. And uh, in uh, in uh, and she has uh, Harambe Arts has a program in Nepal too. Um, I know it's mainly for I think for uh, uh, women who have escaped uh, slavery, prostitution. You know. uh, but there's a word for it. I forget. Anyway, uh, and uh, this is a very active program here at Harambe Arts. Anyway, she's going to tell you about it. She's going to tell you about a very interesting life she's had. And um, so we'll get right into that as soon as we've had our pause to meditate. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause. And meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're through with the meditation or whatever, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever and give Gloria Simono a call. Hello. Well, hi, Gloria. How you doing? David? Hi, yeah. Well, hi. Wow. I'm uh, still recovering from COVID over here. Oh, goodness. Yeah, but doing better. Oh. How are you doing? I'm fine. Katrinka's fine. She remembers you, uh, especially coming into the Panama Hotel in San Rafael. And uh, we're enjoying the coolest time of the year here, windy, really nice. So, Gloria, what are you up to these days? What am I up to? I am up to making a movie oh. in uh, Kenya and Nepal to document my program there. And uh, just came back from Kenya where we filmed for two weeks 
I have a film crew of two people, and we're heading to Nepal in a month to continue filming. Wow. So yeah. why don't you uh, uh, tell us what the movie is about? You know, what's your okay. organization yeah. and all that and what it does? Okay. Well, uh, 15 years ago, I was a Fulbright scholar in Kenya. And while I was there, I started a few programs, one for HIV-positive women in a high-security women's prison. Wow. Uh, a support group. Yeah, a support group for HIV-positive women. And number two was working with children in the slums of Kabera, uh, where we painted murals every weekend. And number three was working with children with severe autism and other neurological issues and disabilities. So those three have developed developed into a nonprofit I started called Harambe Arts. And Harambe means let's all pull together in Swahili language. Mm. Uh, um, could you spell it? Yeah. Uh, like spell uh, the name of the website. Uh, yeah, exactly. Harambe. Harambe. Let's all pull together. H A R. No, you got to spell it. Okay. H A R A M, like Mary, B, like boy, E E. Harambe. And, and the website is? HarambeArts.org. HarambeArts.org. Okay. So, right. wow, a film. Very good. Well, the reason I want to do it is because the organization has expanded. It's grown. It's the work, the impact that my staff in both of these countries has is so, so powerful and so huge. And I can't ever find words to describe what the relationships that have been built with children and women who have had trauma. Um, I cannot even explain what it feels like to see my staff in action. So the only way we can do it is to show it. So that's the point of making a film. Wow. Wow. Well, keep, keep me in touch about it. I'm sure you will. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Uh, how does one get? How does one get on the Harambe Arts um, email list? Um, okay, let's see. How does one get on it? Does it? I don't know. There, <laughs> there's a place that says contact, right on the top. You mean uh, just go to the website and figure it out? Or better, you know, people can just email me. At Gloria at HarambeArts.org. All right. Gloria at HarambeArts.org. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But I should say a little bit more about the, uh, the project. Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, you want me to? Absolutely. You can go on for as long okay. as you want. Or do you want to ask me questions about No, it? no. I want you to tell me what you want to say. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um... Okay, so in Kenya, we have a staff of 12 people plus four youth in training. 
So it's 16 people total. Um, they're all locals, mostly um, born and raised in, in the biggest slums in Nairobi. And what I'm most proud about is four of my staff were children in the project when they were kids. And now they're, they're adults and they're leading the program. Uh, it's very, very um, satisfying to see mm. Mm. and to experience what these, this staff is doing. It's, it's beyond words. Mm. Um, we work with children and women who have serious issues. And you, we use art, visual arts, dance, music, storytelling, and it gives people a voice, people who don't have a voice with words. It gives them an opportunity to express what's going on to them, their history, their, their um, everything. It gives them an opportunity to express themselves mm. very, gen- very gently um, without words. Mm. And then <clears throat> we've created a very, very strong community. Um, and then in Nepal, I work with women who have been rescued from sex trafficking. And I've trained seven of them over the past 10 years. And they now lead groups for women, for, for mostly young girls who have just been rescued from trafficking um, from brothels in India. And they use the same techniques that we did together 10 years ago to give them hope and give them a vision for a healthy future. So they take those techniques and carry them into the halfway houses and safe houses and work with girls who are just rescued. And uh, my staff, one of them was eight years old when she was sold by her father. Um, Sex trafficking is an epidemic in Nepal because of the extreme poverty and if one girl is sold, the whole family can eat for two or three years. Mm. So that's what happens. And my team, when I first met them, they never thought they would do anything with their lives. And now they're strong uh, facilitators in this process. They get paid um, and they're really, really, make, they know that they're making a difference in the lives of other girls who experienced exactly what they did. Hmm. Hmm. How, how did, um, you got started in Kenya. How did you get into Nepal? How did that come about? Uh, well, I was living in Nepal, in Kenya. I was living in Kenya as a Fulbrighter. And after a year and a half, um, went back to the States, and I was really fortunate to get a position with Save the Children, doing exactly what I do and what I'm trained to do and love to do. So I was sent to um, Nepal and other countries through Save the Children. So that's how I managed to be, be introduced to the, the group of survivors of human trafficking. Yeah. Because Save the Children sent me to do a workshop with them over one weekend. Oh, so Save the Children just sent you there to do uh, some some one thing, uh, a workshop. Well, actually, I was 
Save the Children sent me to Nepal for a month to uh-huh. train teachers in remote areas how to work with children who had been affected by the uh, guerrilla uprising where a lot of people were killed. There was huge trauma. Mm. Um, so I went to train teachers on how to use art to help children express the trauma they were holding inside. And then while I was there, Save the Children asked me to do a weekend workshop with survivors of sex trafficking. And I had no idea what to do. I really was nervous. I didn't really want to do it. But you can't say no to Save the Children. So I did and absolutely became uh, completely invested in this group of women. And Save the Children didn't want to pursue any any further work with them. So I told them I would come back individually and work with them, which I did. So that's how it started. Mm. How did you get funding to go back and work with them individually? Huh. Um, <clears throat> well, I raised funds. I, I, I did it through Harambe Arts. By then. Oh, oh, wait. Um, so wait, yeah. wait. You you went to uh, Nepal with Save the Children, but you had already started Harambe Arts? In Kenya. In Kenya. Did you start Harambe Arts just while you were in Kenya for the first time, just starting yeah. to do that? Yeah. Oh. I was doing, I was working there under the Fulbright association and um while i was there i had identified these three projects that i wanted to these three populations that i wanted to continue working with and that was outside of the fulbright actually so i just started these programs and when i came back to the states i started to fundraise um to keep it going and I have a lot of friends who believe in my work after 20 years with homeless children and eight years with children with cancer. Uh, a lot of people know about my work. So it wasn't that hard to form a foundation of donors. Now, uh, I, so you said a lot of people knew about your work with children of with cancer, and what was the other one? Homeless. Tell us about that. Okay. How did that um, come about? When okay. did you get into that? And Okay. Yeah. Okay. But first I'll tell you why people like to donate money to me. It's because I'm really cheeky, and basically I don't say, tell, take no for an answer, and people <laughs> um, are really impressed with my passion. And I have uh, several PhDs in chutzpah, so um, that's what I do. I'm really, really good at at raising funds for projects that I know have to happen. Yeah. So um, in 1981, I guess it was, yeah, um, in San Francisco, I... Wait a minute. I want to ask one other question here to sort of locate this. What year did you go to Kenya on the Fulbright? Oh, 2007. 2007. Yeah. Okay. And I I lived there for two years almost. Yeah. 
Wow. So and then, and then I got an, another Fulbright in 2016 to work in Haiti. So I've also done quite a lot of work in Haiti and in goodness. two other Caribbean islands. Wow. Yeah. You know, something, huh? Wow. That's Tricky. really something. All right. Now, back in 1981. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I had been traveling all around the world. And I came back to San Francisco because my brother and sister lived here. Um, I wasn't, I have no idea what I was going to do. And there was an ad for a, an art teacher in uh, the newspaper at a small private school in the Sunset District. Hmm. I applied for the job. I thought I could do that. Applied for the job, and the night before the interview, I got a call saying, well, we can't really afford an art teacher. We need a social studies teacher. So I said, well, that's amazing. I'm a social studies teacher. So we set up an interview, and the next day I went to the library to find out what social studies was. <laughs> right. And I got got the job, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I didn't have a clue about, okay, now what? But I have a lot of self-confidence, so I knew I'd figure something out. Um, one of the boys in my class, there were about 16 children in the class. It was um, fourth, fifth graders. He had cancer, and he was out every month for a whole week. And he lost his hair, and um, he was very obviously different and in pain. So I started to visit him in the hospital where he was being treated. And through that, um, I became introduced to this whole world that absolutely grabbed my attention and just gripped me so thoroughly. Um, there was a, a un an oncology unit for children who was kind of stuck way in some area that nobody really wanted to go there. It was um, um, isolated. And there were a lot of kids on the ward. What, what uh, hospital care. was that? Uh, California Pacific Medical Center. Mm. So I started to volunteer and I volunteered also at UC um, uh, the hospital on the hill. UC hospital. Yeah, they have a, a children's cancer unit yeah. that uh, Meg Meg Alexander managed that for, for managed some time. It. Yeah, In what she, capacity? she she managed a house where or a, a well, oh, wasn't Ronald a house. McDonald's. Uh, uh, Ronald McDonald. Huh? Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald house. What? I know what you're talking about. Ronald McDonald House, it was called. Oh. Yeah. R Robert I mean, Lytle took me that. there uh, once. Robert Lytle took oh. me there. Uh, oh. And, uh, uh, you know, it was very, very touching. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, so I was working at two hospitals, but California Pacific Medical Center was really my 
focus. And mm-hmm. I started going twice a week as a volunteer and bringing all my art supplies. And it was exactly where I wanted to be. I, I was craving some place where people were really authentic and there was no bullshit. Um, the parents and the kids and I, I just felt so comfortable in that environment. People of all kinds of different religions and political outlooks, but they all came together just because their child was suffering. Mm-hmm. And it was really powerful, just powerful. So I volunteered and then um, the hospital put me on staff because what I was doing was really groundbreaking. And <clears throat> pretty soon I was invited to teach the psychiatry interns, how to create relationships with children. And I would go to rounds with them, and I would go to tumor conferences and talk about um, how important it is to just enter a room with a child one-on-one, no white coat, no clipboard, sit down at their level, look in their eyes, and just be there and listen. And... Most of them couldn't do it. They had too much training. But it was a really um, big big learning time for me. But my biggest learning was from the kids with cancer. They were my biggest teachers I've ever had in my life. They taught me how to be present, how to just stay with the pain, because that's what they had, not to leave, even though most people... one would want to leave. Um, you know, I observed people coming into the room to visit and they would fix the flowers and open and close the window and make some food. Or, but I, I hardly saw anybody who was just able to sit down with the kids and just be there. And so that became my commitment. I wanted to learn how to do that. Um, so I was eight years with those kids and they taught me everything. Mm. And uh, that was such a blessing. Mm. And, of course, I made a million mistakes. And that that was okay, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when that was... And then in 1989, I, I couldn't continue there at a certain point. I went to visit a girl named Gina. She only had one arm. Um... She couldn't speak any longer. She only had one eye. She was lying in the ICU. And I held her hand. And I was saying goodbye to her. And my handprint, my hand, left a print on her hand. uh, A mark of my handprint. Because her playlist count was so low. And I walked out of that room and I thought to myself, I've done it. I've made my mark. And now I have to leave here and move on to something else. Mm-hmm. So that was my last moment. And a year later, I started Drawbridge, an arts program for homeless children, which is still going on 33 years later. Oh, I remember that. I, I forgot yeah. about Drawbridge. Right, right. Yeah. So that was another episode so- in the life of a wild person. Tell, tell us about Drawbridge. Well, um, 
I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything quite as devastatingly um, filled with grief as dealing with dying children for a while. So I visited my brother, Rick, who was a priest. You know Rick. Oh, yes. Well, he's a priest and he's a doctor who worked with the most down-and-out people in the Tenderloin. Right. I, I visited him in the Tenderloin at a clinic he was working at. <clears throat> and I saw for the first time children who didn't have homes, children who were living on the streets and in shelters with their family. And mm. this was 1989, and homelessness was just really beginning to be an issue. And there was one shelter in the city for families called the Hamilton Family Shelter in the hate and I called them on on the phone I said I can work with the children in your um, in your shelter using art Um, it will relax them it will give them a space to feel like a child and which they don't normally get and if you pay me ten dollars an hour I'll have a um a grant for you in three months. And he said, start tomorrow. This was on the phone. Yeah. So I started to work there. And three months later, I got a grant and continued working there with the homeless. And, and I was really thinking, oh, this is going to be so much more cheerful than working with cancer children, children who were facing death. And actually, it turned out to be much more challenging Mm-hmm. Because many of the children in the shelters had no role model for anything healthy. Uh, many of their parents were addicted or um, uh, living very unhealthy lifestyles and not really um, evolved themselves, uh, sadly, and living in terrible poverty, like uh, generations after generations. Anyway. I didn't explain that very well, but... um, Yes, you did. That's very clear. Okay. So the children who were living in the shelters were totally out of control and had no idea about taking care of the materials or or themselves or a lot of fighting, a lot of... um, It was very, very, very challenging. And it took me... I felt like it took me at least a year to start to get under the skin of what it felt like to be a homeless child and to begin to really be, have empathy. Um, because these are children who, m- many of them were parentified. They had to raise their own siblings. Um, often they took care of their parents. They had no friends because you can't invite a friend home when you don't have a home. Um, they changed schools on an average of four times a year. Um, no, like, Christmas decorations in the closet. No routines. No, nothing that we take for granted that creates a healthy family. So these kids struggle, and they have so much shame, filled with shame and guilt. So finally I began to understand and by then, the program was going really strong, and I had requests from two other shelters to start another project, one in Moran and one in 
um, I forget where the other one was. So maybe also San Francisco. So by then, after a year, I was in three shelters. Um, luckily for the social studies students, I was able to quit that job. <clears throat> and I had raised money to do this work with homeless children. And after five years, we were in seven different shelters in three counties. And I had started hiring people to help out. Uh, had a board of directors and became a nonprofit. And sadly for me, after 19 years with the organization, I never worked with kids anymore. I was just the, the, the boss, the manager, the fundraiser, the, and I really didn't, wasn't happy. So mm. that's why I left. Mm. That's why I left and was lucky to get a Fulbright scholarship to take me on my next what, adventure. Now, you got a Fulbright scholarship. How did you get that, and what was it for? Um, I got that in, let's see, uh, yeah, in 2007. And I, I had heard about Fulbright scholarships. I didn't think I would qualify because I don't have a PhD, and most of the, um, that's one of the, requirements in most of the fields. I applied to do art therapy, to teach art therapy. And I wanted to go to Africa. And I really wanted to go to Kenya, where I'd fallen in love with the country and the culture. So I called the Africa office in Washington, D.C. And they said, don't apply for Kenya. It's so competitive. There's like 450 applicants for 10 spots. Is there any other country you're you're aligned with? And I said, yeah, I've taught at the University of Zimbabwe. And they said, apply there. You have a much better chance. There are, um, last year there were 20 applicants for three spots. So I applied to Zimbabwe. I got the fellowship. Um, I was approved. And I went to Washington, D.C. for the ceremony to let you know what you're supposed to do as a Fulbright person and how you're supposed to look and dress and everything. Um, I got to the ceremony. There were about 180 people there who were going to be sent all over Africa. I was the only one with a purple scarf. I thought, oh, boy, what am I getting into? You were the only one with what? With a purple scarf. Um, (laughs) I felt very, very different. Uh, you know, it's all academic. Anyway, so I'm in this um, hall with all these very smart people. And the <laughs> the, uh, the main dude came up to me and he said, we can't send you to Zimbabwe. The country is too unsafe right now. It's not secure. What's your second choice? And I said, Kenya. He said, okay, you can go to Kenya. <laughs> so that's how I got my... That's how I got my Fulbright to Kenya. Wow, wow. Mm. But that's like the story of my life. Wow. Um, incredibly lucky and like through the back door type thing. Um, yeah. Wow. I've grown uh, used to it. You, you know, uh, Elin, uh, her uh, uncle and cousins uh, 
Uh, well, her aunt and uncle are in Kenya, and her cousins were there. I think they're in the United States oh. now. So she's been there. Kelly's been there. Uh, and oh. he, yeah, and uh, uh, he's uh, uh, Uncle Randy. He's uh, uh, an eye doctor, and he got uh, oh, he got some. He'd go around setting up uh, eye clinics, uh, and maybe in more than just Kenya. And he got some. He got some big grant to do that to keep doing it. Anyway, uh, uh, and uh, Steve Tipton. I don't think you know him. He's before your time. Yeah. His wife, uh, maybe Gretchen. Uh, yeah. She's a, a some sort of. I mean, her whole life of scholarship has been in Kenya, and Steve. <laughs> I, I I I don't know what they do. Uh, you know, Steve's like one of the most prominent sociologists in America, and he he told me about going to Kenya. This is a long time ago, and it was like uh, going from the airport to get into town. They had to run through a roadblock where people were shooting at them. And have uh, have have you had experiences like that? Um, I have been held up by, at gunpoint. Uh-uh. I've had a few scary experiences. I have had a few scary experiences. I once got held up at gunpoint, for example. Like like um, how? What's the setting? Well, I was staying in a beautiful neighborhood with friends, uh, friends who lived there for many, many years. And every day I would take a walk um, like a couple of kilometers up and back the road. And this particular day, there was nobody else on the road. I don't remember why. It was hot. It was the middle of the afternoon. And I got to the end, which was a dead end, uh, uh, kind of a cul-de-sac. I don't know what you call it. Anyway, I got to the end of the road, and these two boys on a motorbike came around the corner towards me, just as I was turning around and they came right up to me. There was nobody else around and they held up this gun and they said, we're going to hurt you. We want your money. We're going to hurt you. And I totally freaked out. I did what you're not supposed to do. I started to scream and I had about $1 on me and an old phone that was taped up with masking tape and I, they ripped it. They ripped my money belt from me, which held those two things, and ran off. But I was, I was terrified. Yeah. And um, then just then, another car came around the corner, a big white SUV, and this guy. I stopped the guy, flagged the guy. I said, "Please, let's follow those guys on the motorcycle. They just robbed me. They have a gun." And the guy's like. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, I'm going to follow them. They have a gun. No, my darling. He kept saying, my darling, just get in the car. I'll drive you home. My darling. Oh, I don't like it when things like this happen to people, to tourists. And anyway, yeah. it was scary. Yeah. Very scary. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any other Kenya stories? Oh, I have a million stories. I mean, how about one more? Oh, here's, here's a good one. 
I okay, so I don't have too much fear of being in odd, remote places. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't scare me at all. In fact, I love it. You know, the stranger, the better. Um, and so I was very, very comfortable working in the slums in Kibera, which is kind of dumb. I mean, it's very naive. And I was lucky that nothing happened to me. I had a, I bought a car, so I would draw a white woman driving around the slums. A little hard to describe, but it was uh, it's packed with people, just teeming with people, and um, you have to drive really slowly. And anyway, so I would go and work with kids on the weekends, and then um, I made friends with some young Kenyans who who uh, was were working with me. And after work, we'd go to this bar called the Stage Inn and have a few beers. And it was, it's like the most seedy place on earth. You can't even imagine how seedy this bar is. Um, and I loved it. They play this incredibly great African music and dancing and drinking beer. I loved it there. I still go. And, um, and I sent my son once when he was in Kenya and I told him to go to the bar and he wrote to me, mom, you're never going back to that place. It's so unsafe and so, so bad. Anyway, <laughs> one time, one time I left there and it was dark already, which I usually didn't do. I was driving by myself and I got lost trying to drive back to the city center and I'm driving, driving, and I couldn't find my way. And uh, it was like a very quiet area, and there was no one around. And then I see three young people walking, and I drive up to them, and I said, oh, my God, I'm lost. Can you guys get in the car with me and help direct me to the city center? And they were students. So they get in the car, and they're like, where are you coming from? And I said, Kibera. And they said, what were you doing? I said, I was drinking. <laughs> And they said, stop the car. We're getting out. <laughs> We're driving with a lost white woman who's been drinking. You crazy? So anyway, one of them did stay with me and got me back home. But that was another story. <laughs> I, have a, I have a ton of stories, really. Well. Yeah. Uh, but some of them are like X-rated, so I can't share them. Uh-huh. Some of them are... are uh... Uh, forbidden to well, share. Well, I can tell you, but I'm not going to say it. On yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Um. Well, all right. I want to go back further. In 1981, you um, you you got back from traveling around the world. Now, I met you uh, around. 1972? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. At Tassajara. Yes. And Steve Weintraub, I remember, drove us back to the city. Uh, yes. And what, so was that the first time you had come? Uh, Rick, Rick had been around Zen Center for a few years at that point. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, was that, 
When was the first time you 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 came? I guess you came to visit Rick at Zen Center or something. Yeah. Right. 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 Uh, and I was I don't know why I was Tassar. I was the work leader in the city. Maybe there had been a Shuso ceremony or something at Tassar. Uh, but anyway, uh, was that the first time you had you had come to uh, the Zen Center realm? Yes. Mm. Yes. And I remember you were in your uh, not speaking time. Oh, right. Right. That was six months. That went on six months. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yep. And I remember, well, I remember that very well. And I remember um, becoming friends with Daya. Oh, and, wonderful. Daya, and, who was Diane back then. Yes. And Betsy. Yeah, and, Betsy uh, was Elizabeth Sawyer. I know. I right. Know. Uh, and, um, yeah. yeah. And uh, one thing I remember so clearly is I was on my way to Peru. And oh. I wanted, somebody had once told me that they saw colors in the mountains in Peru that didn't exist anywhere else. And I was like crazy to see those colors. I remember so that now. I re- Do you? I, well, I remember you really wanted to go to Peru. I remember that. I don't remember the and colors you thing. You told me, you tried to, you talked about, in, in your, well, I don't know, without words, I guess you wrote things. I forget. But you told me that um, that was kind of a waste of my time. And, you know, I should stay at Zen Center and explore within Blah, 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 blah. And really? Like, yeah, you told me some garbage, you know. Yeah, about, what a um, true believer. <laughs> <laughs> you told me all this garbage about, you know. Well, I liked you. I wanted you to stay. Oh, I see. Okay, well, well it totally didn't work. I thought you were an idiot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had so, an etch yeah, sketch I had an etch sketch Oh, that was it. <laughs> right. So I'd write on it and then rip the rip it up, and that would erase yeah, yeah, it and yeah, write yeah. again. Right, right, right. So, you know, it's bullshit to go to Peru, you know. What a waste of time. You just explore your own inner blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know, go to hell. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, yeah, I'd been in Peru. Uh, I was in Peru in 65. So what did you do? But I was just there briefly, going passing through. Well, I, I stayed two years in Peru. And what did you do there? <clears throat> well, I ended up living in a very, very remote area. Um, this is probably the best year of my life, actually. And I was so lucky. Um I lived in Cusco for a year in the town, and I made art, and I sold art, and I worked in a little school for kids, blah, blah, blah. And there was a a couple who would come into town once a month to get supplies. They were French. And they were living in a very remote place sent by UNESCO to to, um, tape the most pure indigenous music of Peru. So they were in this area. And I was just crazy to find out more about it. And they'd come once a month, as I said. And 
And I asked them if they would take me up to their place where they stayed. And finally, they had to ask permission of the elders and have a council meeting. And they took me up to this area. And it was very hard to get to. You got on a train uh, four hours. And the train slowed down, didn't actually stop. And then we'd get off there. And I had a dog and a cat. I had to throw them out the window. And then wait for a truck. Wait a minute. And You were traveling with a dog and a cat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucy and Roberto. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Gee. <laughs> uh, so we'd wait for a truck, and sometimes the truck would come that day or not. And then you'd have to walk eight hours to this this community where these two French people were staying. And it's uh, over 12,000 feet up. It's absolutely breathtaking, exquisite area. Um, Anyway, well, I was there with them for a month, and then the woman got sick, and they had to go back to France, and uh, asked me to stay in their little adobe house, taking care of things, so they got back, and they never came back. So I had a house there in the very high, they call it the Altiplano of Peru, where I lived for a year with Lucy and Roberto. Hmm. Yeah, and I learned Quechua. I learned Quechua from the children, and I did everything they did. I Well, I would work half a day. Uh, I was stationed with the children, um, planting potatoes and harvesting and taking the llamas out and the... um, those kind of things, going fishing and like that. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that was something. Wow. And then after a year, what did you do? I came back to, I fell in love, which was like sort of a pain in the ass, but you know how it is. Yeah. Um, one, one of my visits to Cusco, I fell in love with a Dutchman who I ended up marrying in India the following year. Is that right? Yeah. And we went to Amsterdam and lived on a houseboat for a few years. Wow. I, I, you know, I forgot all about that. Wow. I think I used to know that. You might have met him. Yeah. We're still very good friends. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so, wow, there's a lot of Dutch people here. Uh, uh, oh, really? Oh, yeah, because, because uh, uh, you know, uh, the Holland uh, or the Netherlands um, uh, oh, yeah, colonized yeah. Indonesia. Uh, and uh, so I've, I've known uh, 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 Dutch people who were third generation here and stuff like that. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> um, so... Um, so uh, you lived with him for a few years, and then what happened? Oh, and then I got a job. <laughs> it's so funny going over all this with you, David. Well, it's you great. Know? It's so interesting. It's, it's terrific. So, so we're living in Holland, and I never could quite get used to Holland. Oh, do you remember Adine? Huh? 
Do you remember Adine? Yeah, of course I do. I'm in touch with Adine now. You're kidding. No. All right, well, well, she, I'm the one who met her in Peru. Oh. Yeah. She, I was, she was visiting her sister who lived in Peru. And then, um, yeah, she and I, Adine and I became friends. And that's how she came to know about Zen Center. Is that right? She's she's in Holland now. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, I think she lives on an island. Is that right? Yeah, she. I don't know. I'm I'm but not I'm sure. Still in, I'm still in touch with her sister, who lived like we were very close. Sister lives in Australia. Anyway, um, wait, what did you ask? Oh yeah. So after after the houseboat. Yeah, I never felt really at home in Amsterdam, too cold and stiff. And um, I had been, I just came from one of the most amazing, beautiful, natural, pristine places on earth where you could basically touch the sky. You, never, you didn't want to move. All you wanted to do was look at the sky all day long. It was so gorgeous. <laughs> and here I am in, in the city of Amsterdam. So I got a job working on a windsurfing magazine on Ibiza, on the island of Ibiza in Spain. So I moved there for two years. Where? Spain. You know the island? Oh, in Spain. Um, yeah. Now, but so uh, did you and your husband break up? Well, we weren't very together. I, you know, he came, but by then... We lived together, but it wasn't like much fun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mm -hmm. we lived together. He came and stayed there. Um, anyway, so I got a job on this windsurfing magazine. The reason, the way I got it, was I heard that this magazine was needing a photographer to travel to Africa to Senegal, like in a day. Somehow I heard that. Mm -hmm. Dutch people don't operate that way. I knew that. I knew that you're not going to find a Dutch person who's going to say, okay, I'll go to Senegal tomorrow. Yeah. So I went to meet the, um, the head of the magazine, and I said, I'd like the job, and um, I'm free to go to Africa tomorrow, and I'm a good photographer. Of course, then I had to borrow all the photography equipment. But um, I, he said, no, thanks, that's okay. And I said, you know, you're not hiring me because I'm a woman. And he looked at me and he said, okay, you have the job. <laughs> so that's how, I got, that's how I got that one. <laughs> and I had to, had to borrow all the equipment. And I was off to Africa. And I took really great pictures. So then they had decided to move their offices to Spain to this island, Ibiza, and so there, that's what I did. Now, did you say a windsurfing magazine? Yes, yes. Uh, there's a lot of that here. <laughs> oh yeah, I too. I mean, we just we live near Ibiza. There's windsurfing there all the time. I had one guy, and then nobody done this before. There's an area where people swim, and usually I'm the only one there. I mean that. People don't swim, really. They just go stand in the water, mainly. This dude came within within two yards of me. 
He's going oh like gosh. 50 <laughs> miles an hour. I think he was sort of saying hello. It was really good. But I, as he went by, I said, hey, man, too close. Don't do that. Uh, oh, my God. But uh, windsurfing is very popular here. Well, this was when it was just beginning to be popular. You know, we're still in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And I was supposed to go to Senegal and take pictures of windsurfers next to traditional boats uh, like, to do that kind of that kind of like whatever artistic thing. Is Senegal on the ocean? Yeah. Uh-huh. Which yeah. side is it on the west? It's on the west. Yeah. 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 Mm. So they sent me to this fancy all inclusive hotel. You know, I had an expense account and blah, blah, blah. And every morning I'd go to the buffet breakfast and fill a basket with huge amounts of food and walk about a mile and distribute it in a village to all the people who lived there who were hungry. Mm. So how long were you there? Well, so we were in Spain. I was in Spain for two years. Then I went to India and... um, Why'd you go yeah. to India? Oh, well, I, when I was living in Spain on the island, um, these two llamas came to do a course. And I was desperate to get away from my boyfriend at that point. And I your asked boyfriend? Him to go, Are you talking about your husband? Oh, we got married later in India, actually. Yeah, oh, we you later. weren't married yet? Oh. No. Uh, so, so you were um, desperate to get away from him, and then you married him. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm not so smart. Um, so um, I wanted him to do this course for two weeks so I could have some, you know, some time to breathe and to just be myself. But he didn't want to. So I decided to do the course, even though I wasn't really interested, um, Tibetan Buddhism. So I arrived at the course. I was late, of course. Everybody else was sitting there looking like perfect meditators. And um, there were about 200 people in the hall. And I go in, and I took one look at Lama Yeshe, who was one of the teachers. And I felt, literally felt the, the, the earth move under my feet. Like I couldn't keep my balance. And... um that was that was it. I mean, he was my teacher, and mm. I absolutely love and adore Lama Yeshe. And he, so, I the day after the retreat, I packed up and followed him to Nepal, and oh. spent like yeah, spent like six months in his monastery. And then my boyfriend met me in India, and we were together there for a while. Where in India? So, uh, well, he met me in Delhi, and we were in. We went to Rishikesh, and um, yeah, in that area. Yeah, northern, northern. But here's another really interesting story, actually. If you want to hear about Lama Yeshe, yeah, Lama Yeshe is really my my very powerful guide. Um, he has a center in Boulder Creek, California, oh. as well as Nepal, and also all over the world he has centers. So 
when I was working with children with cancer, and I was almost nine months pregnant with my daughter, someone came up uh, and found me in the lunchroom and said, I know you're interested in Buddhism. There's a Lama in intensive care. And I immediately knew it was Lama Yeshe. I had heard that he had heart problems. So he, where Where um, is this? California Pacific Medical Center. Oh, wow. What year? This was in like 84. Oh, like 84. okay. Go on. So he was there and he was dying. Hmm. And so because I had my hospital badge... I got to spend the last week of his life with him. And my daughter was born the day of his cremation, and his, her middle name is Yeshe. Mm. Um, I'll never understand how that all happened. You know, it's one of those things that's so huge. Um, mm. How mm. Lama Yeshe ended up in my hospital. And, I was, and none of his students, you know, many thousands, weren't allowed to see him because I had the hospital badge. I could just sit there all day long. And he asked me to rub his feet and this and that. And the day before he died, they flew him to another hospital in Los Angeles for some reason. I forget. And he died there. But I got to spend my, oh my God, that week just being with him. Can you imagine? Mm. With, with your teacher? Mm. Oh, my God. I mean, so many blessings have fallen down on my head. It's just remarkable and too much, you know, too much to too much to hold sometimes. I, I mean, seriously, too much. And I just have this this wonderful luck, like like his holiness, the Dalai Lama was in San Francisco doing teachings and, and I didn't want to go with, you know, 800 other people and pay a lot of money. And I, so I didn't. And I was walking in Berkeley by Chez Panisse with my dog. And all of a sudden there's all these Tibetan people standing on the sidewalk and his holiness comes down the steps from Chez Panisse and comes right over to us to pet my dog and to <laughs> bless me. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, great. David, David, what kind of a life is this? <laughs> uh, do you get it? I mean, seriously. <laughs> oh, my God. What year was that? Um, well, my kids were born already, so probably about 1990. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's neat. That's neat. Um, well, that... In in terms of the chronology here, that you were last in India with uh, your husband, yeah, uh, yeah, your Dutch husband. I got married husband. on an elephant. I got married on an elephant. I mean, I came into the ceremony on an elephant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's far. What 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 town? Um, outside of Delhi, not too far outside of Delhi. We were staying in an ashram. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. Wow. Anyway, but I, you know, um, Franciscus was a miserable husband, and um, <laughs> but he's a very, very close friend now. So it's all, yeah, it's all with it now. It, it, the ashram you were staying in uh, is there uh, some teacher associated with it? Yeah, uh, his holy. What did they call him? 
Darshan Singh. Darshan Singh. S A M S I N G H. He was a bit shady too, but Singh. You know, that's kinda... that's Sikh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a Buddhist thing. We it was had a, you got a, you had a Sikh wedding. Yeah, yeah. It was you know it was adorable. Yeah. Um, but but he we had had all our money stolen, so we went to this ashram to get fed and to stay till we get some could get some money to get out of India. Uh huh. How'd you get all your money stolen? So you know my my boyfriend was an idiot. And he went to change it on the black market and came back to the hotel with like, you know, three cents left. Oh, black market. Was that the standard way to do things? On the street. No, I don't know. Sometimes sometimes black market is the correct way. Uh, Yeah. But uh, in in, my, my Asian travels were later, you know. Uh, and it was not the correct way. The established yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. money right. changers were the ones to use. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. And ATMs. It's been ATMs for a exactly. long time. I pay. I I pay rent here with ATM. You know, go oh go God. make like well, fifty withdrawals. It's the, absolutely oh the best exchange rate. It was. Five hundred dollars less than getting a wire transfer. Whoa! Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, so I don't well, keep money well, here. Yeah. But well, of course. Um, so you got married. So what? What then? There you are in uh, in Delhi. Uh, yeah. And then I got a telegram from my mother, from my stepfather. Um, I call. No, here's what happened. I called home, which I didn't do very often. And my stepfather said, oh, you must have gotten the letter. And I said, what letter? He said, I sent you a letter. Your mom has cancer. So can you come home and help me take care of her? So I flew to New York. and took- What about your husband? He went back to Holland. All right. And then he met me in, in New York after a while. Yeah. Yeah. But I came to take care of my mom. Where in New York? Brooklyn. She lived in Brooklyn. Uh, you come and, from Brooklyn. You were born in Brooklyn. Yep. All right. Yep. So I went back to my family home. You know, I stayed in my bedroom where I used to live and listen to eight hours of Joan Baez a day. And, um, <laughs> you know, there I was. That's so great. And I was just... And I was just like in India, you know, like becoming all India type person. So I I was very fanatic and, and I, I cooked for my mom, but I wouldn't use any pots that had ever touched meat. So we had to buy only pots. <laughs> well, and then uh, you could you use, uh, you know, in the Jewish neighborhoods, you have the meat restaurants and the dairy restaurants. You just get one of the dairy right, pots. Kosher. Yeah, kosher. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I did juices, and I did this, and I did that. And and um, and I only had one set of clothes, which was a, an Afghan skirt that was pink in the front and gray in the back. And I could make it into four skirts because I could turn it around 
So in front, it looked half gray, half pink. Or I could turn it around so it was gray in the front. and pink. So it didn't always look like the same skirt, but it was ragged. And it had mirrors on it and blah, blah, blah. And uh, my mom Excuse me, like, I have a question. Did you uh, wash it from time to time? <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally. And, but my mom is not, you know, like an Afghan skirt type of woman. And she's like Bergdorf Goodman, Lord and Taylor. So she finally said, honey, you're not in India anymore. And um, I wore my mother's clothes, you know, like. Oh. Right. Yeah, I did. Um, and I, I mean, I was trying so hard to do it right, you know, fresh juices and and pinstriped shirts buttoned down and, you know, the whole thing. Anyway. Pinstriped shirts buttoned down. I think of that as a male thing. Not, not in those days. Really? Anyway, all right. You know, mm. I, wore my, I wore my mother's blazer and all that shit. So, mm. Sounds like your I mother mean. was a transvestite. <laughs> you know what? I never thought of that before. I hope so. That would have been great. Anyway, <laughs> no, she was just very conservative. Uh, and I went and, got my, went and got my hair cut, you know, at her salon. I looked like a fool, basically. I looked like a fool. But anyway, I finally came to my senses and... For a thank you, she gave me a ticket one way to San Francisco to visit Rick and my sister. So that's how I ended up in San Francisco. What, and and wait way, a minute. What about your mother? Yeah, she got better. She got oh. better. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the boyfriend, Franz, he followed me out to San wait, Francisco. Wait, wait, boyfriend? This. You, got are, husband, whatever. Husband. Whatever. Right. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he followed me to San Francisco, and we were together for a little bit, but not much. Um, yeah. It was on a Guenca course. You know who Guenca is? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Okay, it was on a Guenca course in Mendocino. Um, I don't know, some months after I arrived in San Francisco, that I realized I was pregnant, and Francisca's front was the cook on the course, and I was pregnant from Jay. So oh, you were pregnant from Jay. So yeah. what? Now is this while your husband was there? He was around. Yeah, <laughs> he was around. All right. Um, <laughs> so, so you and Jay, you and Jay, uh, Jay Simono, uh, you and Jay, uh, how long have you been uh, sneaking around? A while. Um, I mean, yeah, he was so handsome. You know, I couldn't, I just, come on, give me a break. It's not my fault, David. No, no. I think it's great. Uh I just asked how long, uh, how long had you all been noodling? Well, Francis and I weren't really, we weren't living together. We weren't really together anymore. But Jay, I don't know, I think he was still married to Annie, actually. Oh, I forgot. Annie who? Remind me. Annie Somerville. Oh my gosh, I forgot all about that. Wow! Yeah. Thanks. Go on. Then who went on to become the 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 
head cook yeah. at Green's Restaurant right. for decades. That's right. That's right. Oh, I love her. She's That's wonderful. Right. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I call him, we call each other our wife-in-law when I see her. Oh, that's funny. So, so Jay, yeah, Jay, uh, you know, I wish the, the best thing that ever happened to Jay. <laughs> 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 he needed it. He needed an infusion of, you know, like, let the fuck, let things go, you know? Chill the fuck out, baby. Yeah. Come on, bro. Just let it go. So, you know, he was really attracted to my wild spirit until he he wasn't. And um, that was that. Well, how long were you all together? You know, I'm not sure because things got a little fuzzy, but I think we were together for about nine years. Yeah, I remember visiting you. uh, Yeah. And and how many children did you have? Two? We have two, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And where are they? Becca lives in Oakland. She's a teacher. And my son is a fireman in Aptos near Santa Cruz. Wow. Cool place to be. Yeah. He's a surfer. He's got two kids. So it's pretty clear now you and Jay got together and you were together. And then I remember you, you know, Elon... And I, when we came back from Japan, and we spent a year in Santa Fe, and then '93 we moved to Gerstle Park, neighborhood one block from you, and right. I, I saw you quite a bit then, uh, right. with Nina living in back, and exactly, and that was after Jay. Yes, that yeah. Was after Jay. So, yeah. so wait a minute. You you were you were well into your work then. That's right, uh, because that was ninety two, yeah. ninety three. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Gloria, we've gone for full circle here. I know. Uh, and I now live. I live in the cottage in the backyard where Nina used to live. That's my home. Oh, that's where you live now. Yeah, I I remodeled it and it's very perfect, small and fabulous. And I rent out the main house. Now, Elon and I lived there from 93 to early 96. Late 93 to early 96. And then Katrinka and I, I'd been living in John Terrence's barn for years, and we we moved into Gerstle Park for two years. I Uh, remember that. Yeah, and and I saw you then, too. Uh, Yeah, and sometimes at the Panama Hotel. Yeah, because she was sort of uh, helping to run that place. That was great. That was yeah. great. I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you know, you know. He sold it, right? Yeah, sure. I know. Yeah. 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 Dan. And, and it's really, it's really pretty crappy now. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, that's what happens. Nothing. Nothing lasts the way you want it to. Boy, that's really true here. I'll tell you. Uh, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, you, you shouldn't get attached to anything because it just changes so much. But a lot, I don't know. There's been a lot of enough sameness and good stuff. Keep going. Well, the people, uh-huh. in it, people. Um, I mean, it's so stable. It's so peaceful. It's so the crime rate is so low 
Katrinka mm. will come walking home at night in dark streets, and we won't worry about yeah. it, you know. Yeah. And oh, Amer- yeah. America, to me, is just frightening. And even even that, even, even Gerstle Park, well, I yeah. did not let her walk home, and she didn't want to, from the Panama Hotel to to our apartment, which was like four blocks at night. I'd go meet her, and we'd walk together. Well, now there's a lot of crime around here. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Well, I was in Bali. I don't remember exactly when, but then I went back with my kids. I think Rebecca was six, so that would be 30 years ago. Holy shit. Yeah, I went back for the second time with the kids. And I couldn't believe, even in like two years, how much it had changed, David. Yeah. Like, I could not believe my eyes in two years. Yeah, it's constantly changing. I was here 30 years ago, too, exactly. Um, really? For two months with Elon. We came. Oh, wow. When we moved from, we'd been in Japan four years, and we were going back to America, and it really wasn't more expensive to go through Bali, and it was so cheap that wow. it was just free. To come here for two months after being in Japan and going to America. Ah, well, Gloria, uh, you know, uh, what you're doing with Arambi Arts is wonderful, and what you did before Arambi Arts is wonderful. And I'm really happy to hear you go over that because mainly we get together, we don't talk about stuff like that. We, I don't know what we talk about. So I'm I'm I learned a lot and I really appreciate well, it. Thanks, David. It's a real treasure to connect with you like this. And, yeah. And it's been really fun too. Yeah. Like telling my life story to someone to telling it to you. It just feels really special and I loved it. So thank you. Me too. Me too. And uh yeah. Well, uh, I'll be keeping up with you, and uh, All right. uh, good luck with the with the film on Rambi Arts, and maybe maybe when it comes out, we can do another one to plug it, or anytime you want to plug something special like okay. that, let me know. Okay, I'll, I'm going to send you a very short thirty second video about the film. Okay, cool. So, yeah, yeah, and um, so you guys are really happy there. Well, yeah, it's, um, uh, don't want to leave. No. So we're, we're both, we're both still, uh, active and breathing. Very good. (laughs) That's very good. That's excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, lots of love to both. And thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, take care. And all right. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks a lot, Gloria. That was really great. Really enjoyed it. And uh, keep up the good work. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doghead Bandita, Feline Cuchita, and dear, lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours, and all of us, a grand awakening.